This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Okay, so um, I, I'm hoping that you're all here for the drama of Scripture. Is that, is that, is that fair? Um, the, the reason that I have, actually, I've got one more, I've got a couple more copies of this sheet if, it, if it's needed. So the reason that I, I thought that this class would be good to do, be good to offer, is because last year I was, uh, we basically had, had structured the preaching schedule in such a way that we were trying to follow kind of book by book through the scriptures. Like we'd find a section of the lectionary, we were going through a certain, certain book, and then I, I would kind of teach a class based on that book. And that worked pretty well, but it didn't work as well for preaching. So I, I did not want to let go of the idea of scriptural catechesis, though. To me, this is a critical thing that we do as a body. We are people of the word. We are people who believe in the creative power of the word, that the word actually forms a people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not a Presbyterian, but I do like this line in the Westminster Confession. The final authority in all matters of faith is the Holy Spirit speaking through scripture. And that formula right there, that is gorgeous. That's one of the most gorgeous lines that's ever been written in the history, history of Christianity, in my judgment. So I, that is actually how the Spirit speaks to us. The Spirit applies the Word of God to the hearts of the people of God. But in order for that to happen, we have to know the Word. We have to know what the story is. So one way for us to get into this is actually just to take a kind of macro level, big look at what actually is the story and how does it function as our story. So today, the first week, and we've only got five weeks now because the first one was canceled. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I was told, I was promised a snowstorm, and uh, what I got was like 60 degrees or something like that. It was ridiculous. Uh, so I feel, I feel kind of bad about it, kind of sheepish, but you know, I was following the advice of my senior warden. So, uh, But anyway, so we, we've only got five weeks to do this in, so it's, it's a little bit of a shorter time, and then... I haven't yet thought through what, what we're going to do next, but we're going to keep going with the scriptural catechesis over the course of the year. I might go back to just, maybe I'll just teach Genesis through Revelation, you know, I might do that. Um, but but this is, this is a, help, a really helpful resource, this book. Um, basically, um, they, they visualize the, the story that has an inner unity that comes from its, its, uh, its form almost as a drama, right? I mean, that, that drama is an imposition upon the text, but it's actually a really helpful, clarifying way to think about how the text works together. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a helpful way for us to enter into that story uh, and for it to become our story. Because, of course, the crucial thing about a drama is that it has dramatis personae, right? It has actors, it has agents that are part of that story. And you and I, in the body of the church, are called into this story to participate in this story to make the backstory of creation and fall and the calling of Abraham and the composition of Israel and Jesus emerging from Israel and living this life of perfect ministry and power and being crucified upon the cross for our sins and being resurrected from the dead and breaking the power of sin and death over a people and composing a new people in the church that includes both Jew and Gentile where the nations are called into the fold and this beautiful story where, where we're promised the resurrection. That's our story, right? 
And we're called to be the body that witnesses to the power of that story, both with our lips and in our lives, as the Book of Common Prayer says. So, uh, so we're, we're gonna, that's where we're going to go. And today uh, we're, we're really looking at, well, what does it mean for it to be our story? And also the first act, right? Creation. God establishes his kingdom. So any questions on any of that so far? Comments, questions are fine. Either one. You want to just like, you know, preach for a second. You can. I'm open to that too. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Amen. All right, good. That's good. All right. I need an amen or an hallelujah. Occasionally, you know, just y'all, y'all let me know you're awake and with me. Uh, okay. So, um, by the way, anytime that a question occurs to you, feel free to raise your hand, interrupt me. I really like that way of teaching. It's more dialogical rather than just giving you a, a stream of words, right? Interrupt me. It actually helps clarify my thought. Okay, so I want to begin with this kind of formal point about every human community. Every human community that exists lives by some story that helps its members orient themselves in moral space. Okay? In other words, we don't just live in an environment as people. Animals live in an environment. But human beings are also animals, so we have an environment, but we also have a world. And the world is a place of meaning, it's a place of action, it's a place of intelligible moral action. And so we have to be formed by some story, by some narrative, in, in order to be able to act within the world that we've created socially. And so stories are what are actually the way in which we are able to locate ourselves as a community. And the stories that we tell each other shape our artifacts, shape our institutions, they shape our aphorisms. In other words, like, you know, the, the little proverbial wisdom that we tell each other about, you know, you got to take care of yourself, that kind of stuff, right? Um, all those little aphorisms we tell, they're shaped by the stories. What, what is it good to long for and to do? They shape our architecture. Right? In short, all of human culture emerges from a story, a particular way of narrating the world. The humans can actually be defined, as Jonathan Gottschall says, as storytelling animals. Right? Aristotle described us as the rational animal. I think it's better to call us the storytelling animal. And, uh, Bartholomew and Goheen say in the introduction that the proper answer to tell me about yourself is to tell a story or a series of stories. By sharing these personal narratives, we come to know one another. We want to understand not only who the other person is now at this moment, but also how he or she came to be so. If I want to tell you who is Jonathan Warren, I cannot help but tell you my history and the history of my people, right? The stories tell us what it is good to do, what we should expect, what we should hope for, what we should orient our lives and our decisions around. And they quote Alistair McIntyre. By the way, this is a difficult book, but an extraordinarily important book. Uh, maybe the most important book on, in philosophy to have come out in the last century, After Virtue. Uh, there's a quotation from it in the, in the introduction. Alistair McIntyre says this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? So these stories, these kind of background stories that are operating in the background when, whenever we act, whenever we hope for something, whenever we give counsel to someone else, whenever we uh, really do anything at all in the world, um, they're sometimes called worldview stories. And scholars who have spent time studying worldview stories argue that they answer every worldview story, every kind of big story like this, answers four or maybe five questions. Who are we? Where are we? What is wrong? What is the solution? 
And then if you want to add a fifth, it's what time is it? Who am I? Where am I? What is wrong? What is the solution? What time is it? Those are the questions. Those are the questions that compose a life, actually. They compose a social world. If you think about it in this way, worldview stories are also dramas because they're all about agency. How do I act meaningfully in the world? And these stories all call us into a perilous quest. We're thrust into the middle of something and we're asked to play a part. We're among the dramatis personae. And these stories actually are often implicit or inarticulate. In a, and actually a functioning healthy culture, they, they, they operate under the surface. We assume them and the answers that they provide about the, the moral space we inhabit are often common sense or self-evident, right? They're only made explicit when stress is placed upon them, either because they come into contact with rival, other incommensurable stories, stories that don't, don't harmonize or don't mesh together with the story that we bring, we bring to, the, to the life that we live. Uh, and the collision with other stories makes us have to ask questions about whether our worldview story is adequate. It forces us to dig deeper to see if there are good reasons for inhabiting the story we do. And this is actually all for the good. That is, it's all for the good if we really end up searching rather than just capitulating to the other story, right? Maybe the other story is powerful, like the modern story is, right? And we just, we tend to capitulate or slide into it. But if we really search, then it's actually all to the good that our worldview as Christians is, is brought into scrutiny. And really, any worldview is brought into scrutiny. So in this sense, actually, it's good that we're putting Christendom in the rearview mirror, uh, Christendom is the time wherein um, basic moral decisions have been made for a culture that are somewhat at least harmonious with the scriptures. Uh, and the sort of taken for granted character of that is actually really bad because it allows, for, number one, for a deformation in the actual Christian story because it's meshed together with a culture that doesn't actually submit to the rulership of Christ. But also uh, the, the self-evidence of it creates nominalism actually. And nominalism is a cancer upon the body of Christ. It's a cancer upon the body of Christ. It's perhaps the worst thing that can happen to Christians to be nominal. Um, and and the, the reason for that is that we are meant to be the body that intentionally witnesses to, that shows forth the glory of God. And when we look actually at, at the scriptures through the lens of worldview, we realize that the situation that we presently find ourselves in, Charles Taylor calls it hyperpluralism, right? We're constantly confronted with pictures of the world, of, of stories that conflict with the, the basic Christian story. That experience, though, is not a uniquely modern experience. Actually, the experience of being surrounded by many, many groups of people who see the world, morality, religion, politics, God, and radically different ways than, than we do as a community is in no way unique to modernity. It actually is the basic foundation of the scriptural narrative. It presupposes this kind of constant contact with worldviews and stories that, that are different and even hostile to it. And God evidently intends his people throughout history to be surrounded by people whose orientation towards the world is fundamentally different than the people of God. And I actually think the reason for this is threefold. I mean, the first one is what I've already said. It's to reduce nominalism. Nominalism makes us extraordinarily vulnerable to falsehood because we actually, because we take for granted, you know, what we, what we believe, we don't actually know what it is that we believe. 
Oh, you are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a kind of, well, if I, if I can put it in this sense, it is a kind of halfway in, halfway out posture. It's a, it's a, it's a posture that takes for granted what is, that the, the story is true in a way that means it doesn't have to be investigated. Does that make sense? And so the person who believes nominally is, huh? Is on the edge, right. Is marginal to, to, the, to the faith, right? The, or the faith really, they're marginal to the community of faith, but they're also, the faith is marginal to them, right? It's, 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 on the, it's on the outer edges of one's heart, right? One can talk about it in a way that suggests a kind of haunting familiarity. One is haunted by the faith. I love Flannery O'Connor's term, being Christ-haunted, right? Um, but uh, but, but it's, it's not something that is at the center of one's life, okay? So that's, uh, that's what I mean by nominalism. Is that clear? Yeah. Gene. Yeah, sure, no. That's what I, please do this over and over again. I like it. Exactly. Moral simply means agency in the direction of a vision of something good, like something that I perceive as good. Oh, absolutely. There are bad visions of the good, right? You see what I'm saying? Everyone has a vision of the good life. So this is helpful. Everyone has a vision of the good life, okay? Americans have a vision of the good life, right? I mean, the good life looks like you know, material success and acquisition looks like getting ahead in your career. Um, David, uh, David Brooks, the, the um, columnist of the New York Times, distinguishes between what he calls the, uh, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. <laughs> and uh, he says, Americans are really, really good at the resume virtues. Like, we're exceptional at that. And so what we've got is a kind of vision of the good life that we walk around with that is like, if I achieve that, then I've really made it. I've arrived. I will have, I will be fulfilled. I will have success. I will have like fulfillment, a sense of fullness, right? My, I will have dignity. I'll possess dignity. So like all of those, all of those things that, that, uh, compose a sense of what it would mean to have achieved the good, then orient one's agency. I direct all of my action, all of my energy, all of my imagination towards that end. Okay. So that's what it means. Like that's the, that is the meaning of moral. Okay. And ethics is the study of how you get from here to there, right? So ethics is not as neutral as well in that sense. Like, it's not, it's, it can be either good or bad, right? Like, if, if your vision of the good life is a bad vision of the good life or a warped vision of the good life, then the ethics that you compose in order to get you from here to there are going to also be similarly warped, right? Okay, so every, every community that has a story that enables it to be oriented in moral space has a vision of the good life that is behind or is, is narrated by that story. And that vision is also not rational. It's not, it's not as though you could write it out in syllogisms. It has to be images. It's, it is like, it's a picture of myself, like in the, to take the American story, right? It's a picture of myself as having ease and safety and security, material acquisition, lots of possessions, right? Lots of friends, lots of like, good times and experiences, all of those things are the images that I have working kind of in the background in my imagination, right? So again, the picture of the good is also a work of the imagination, 
Not in the sense of it being like imaginary, right? It's not fantastical, but it's image driven. And that means it is a product of the imagination, the function of the imagination in our minds and our hearts. Does that make sense? Is everybody following me on that? Okay, that's how the good works. Um, or when I say the good, I simply mean the, vi- the one's vision of what the good is, whether or not it's actually true. So really the only question to ask is, is, is our vision of the good also truthful? Does it conform with the way reality really is? Yes? It's, uh, you say, say more about what you mean by that question. Hundred percent. We have a skewed view. Yes. Then that's that's the good life that we look at. That's true. So in, in that sense, the good is socially formed. Okay? What we what we perceive as the good is socially formed. So the only question is, in what degree, in what measure does that vision of the good actually conform to what reality really is? And we discover what reality is as that vision of the good that's been conferred to us by the community in which we were raised comes into collision with other visions of the good and other communities that inhabit that vision of the good, right? And so then there's a question, like, is the, the picture of the good, is the story that I'm telling to myself about moral space, right, about my, my place in moral space, um, does it actually have the resources to contend with the goodness that I see in this other story, right? And I'm going to get here, I'm not there yet, but my contention, and it's not my contention, this is the whole history of Christianity's contention, is that this story is the true story of the whole world. It is a, the only truly universal story. It is a story that out-narrates every other story. Okay? So, so that's actually the contention. That's the claim. And it's important to note that this is not axiomatic. It's not self-evident. It has to prove itself in experience. Right? in the experience of being part of a Christian community that inhabits the story intentionally and, and forcibly, right? It, it, it is a, and, and it d- does so in a beautiful way, okay? So, um, so yeah, I, I think one, one of the errors that has been made historically is to try to present Christianity as though, as though it could be, you could reason your way into it. Actually, no, right? Uh, it, one has to narrate oneself into it. One has to be narrated into it. Um, what, the, the story has to be told, and it has to be lived and embodied, inhabited in a way that makes it compelling. You see, so so that's the that's uh, a critical piece of what I'm trying to say here about the function of stories. Okay, any other questions before I move on? Okay, all right. So nominalism, you know, obviously on the basis of what I just said, right? Nominalism is is one of the worst things that can happen to the Christian church. Uh, it makes us extraordinarily vulnerable to falsehood because we actually don't know what it is that we believe, even though we think we're familiar with what we believe. We're simply carried, as it were, from here to there by an insulating culture that's developed inside the church. Like we're, 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 um, we, we create our culture in such a way that we're inoculated or um, insulated from the outside world, right? Like all of our relationships are with Christians and all of our, you know, all of our, the, the things that we, um, 
you know, ingest or whatever, we imbibe, like all of those influences are Christian influences. That's actually what happens. This is a, kind of a natural tendency to kind of filter that way. Uh, but then what happens is we don't actually know the faith and we don't know how the faith can help us to respond to the other rival stories that are out there. So this kind of nominalism makes us in this position where we're kind of half in, half out. Like we half believe what it is that the Christian faith says is true about reality. And it's a natural tendency whenever Christianity has been established in a place for a long time and comes to seem like the natural kind of social order uh, that, that this kind of nominalism creeps up. But actually, in the providence of God, who is sovereign over history, he does not allow for this situation to obtain for very long, right? It's a, it is a, if you look at the, the periods of time where Christendom actually obtains, right, when Western Europe or in Byzantium or in America in the 18th and 19th centuries, right, like it doesn't last long uh-huh, because, because Christianity without intentionality is weak. Christianity without intentional discipleship is weak because the whole point is for this body to show forth the glory of God. Okay, second point. Um, the second reason that I think that God consistently puts his people in the midst of other people who don't have the same story is this point that's made by the historian Robert, Robert Louis Wilkin. Another book. Everything is in books, you know? I mean, 100%. Uh, Robert Louis Wilkins is the spirit of early Christian thought. Is such a wonderful, wonderful book. I highly recommend it to you. It's incredibly inspirational. Um, but he begins it this way. He says, The Christian religion is inescapably ritualistic, uncompromisingly moral, and unapologetically intellectual. Uncomp- sorry, inescapably ritualistic, uncompromisingly moral, and unapologetically intellectual. To be ritualistic means this, that our worship enacts a thick culture, a formative culture that people can actually enter into and it forms them, and it can actually carry us when we have doubt. Because doubt actually is a critical part of actually believing the gospel. If we're not open to the paroxysms, the, the spasms of doubt, actually, we won't have the impulse to go further and deeper, further up and further in into the faith. So that the faith needs to be there. It needs to be objective. It needs to, we need to be able to encounter it. And so therefore, Christianity enacts a worship culture that is ritualistic. But that's not all. It's moral. And that means that we're called into a vision of the good life that is counter in many ways, and especially around these three ways, right? The Bible names all of these, and, and anywhere that Christianity has taken root, it's always in tension with the surrounding culture in these three ways. Sex, money, power. Every time. That, those are the ways that it seems that human willing goes off the rails consistently. It's always around sex, money, and power. And so our vision of the good life actually forms us in such a way that we are capable of resisting the kind of surrounding stories about how we should orient our sex and our money and our power. Um, So it's inescapably ritualistic. It's inescapably moral. And it's inescapably intellectual. To be anti-intellectual is to be sub-Christian, actually. We We have to search the scriptures. Wherever Christianity has gone, check this out. There's a missiologist named Laman Sana. Laman Sana says that 90% of the world's lexica, dictionaries, translations, all produced by Christian missionaries. Can you believe that? 90%. 
That's, a, that's critical because what it means is wherever Christianity has gone, it has insisted upon a reading, learning culture. To be a disciple of Jesus means you have to investigate. You must search the scriptures. Okay? So, so it's, cr- it's critical that this has happened. I mean, you know, check this out, too. This, this is a wonderful point, all right? So Robert Louis Wilkin makes this point that, okay, so what's the Russian script called? Anybody know? Cyrillic. Cyrillic. Guess who that's named after? St. Cyril. He's a monk who created the script that Russians write with. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just like, this is, wherever Christianity has gone, it has insisted upon intellectual culture. All right, so it is all three of those things together, though. And Christians, in our dividedness, always tend to cluster around one or the other of those poles, right? It's like, we're either going to be ritualistic, but not moral and intellectual. We're either going to be super moral and like we're gonna we're gonna double down on the you know the energy that we put into morality but we let the ritual and we let the intellectual stuff go or we're like we're like brains on sticks right i mean it's like one of those three right but that but the point is put them all together and actually the encounter with hyperpluralism forces us into that triple uh, mode of life that mode of existence uh, as as believers uh, so it, it, it actually awakens us to the necessity and the experience of all of those three, the power of all three of those things. Okay, the, th- the third reason I think that God puts his people in a situation of hyperpluralism throughout the scriptures and throughout history is that he intends to redeem the whole world through his people. Like that's, that is the point, right? The point of the creation of a people, the point of the calling of Abraham is that his descendants might be what? Like the stars in the sky, right? Right? Yeah, he'll be a blessing to the nations, but your descendants will be as stars to the sky, as stars in the sky. And St. Paul says, hey, guess what? He wasn't just talking about the, the, the children of, of um, natural Israel, right? He was talking about spiritual Israel. Abraham is the father of all those who what? Who have faith, right? Who believe. Absolutely. So, so from the inception, Abraham is... It is the way that God is using his people as an instrument to save the nations, to deliver the nations. And when Israel comes into existence, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, check this out. He says, hey, the whole point that of, of me putting you here in the promised land is that the nations that surround you, the powerful nations that surround you, Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, would look at your laws and say, what country, what nation has such a great God as Israel? That's the whole point, to make him jealous to make them long for it, right? And then when you look at the prophets, this missionary impulse comes out in in spades, right? And you look at Isaiah saying, hey, all the nations are going to bring their offerings and they will be accepted upon the Lord's altar, right? I mean, so this... this, this impulse is, this missionary impulse is always there throughout the scriptures. And, and then when Christ comes and he composes a people for himself, it, it is a people that is to take this gospel, this story of the reconciliation of all things to God, to all the nations. What are, what's our calling? What is, the, what is the great commandment? Go and? Exactly. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? There, there it is in a nutshell, right? Again, there you go. Uh, it's... it's uh, there we go. It's, it's inescapably ritualistic. There's baptism, right? Sorry, go ahead. Can you help me square that up with Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's an excellent point. Um, so this is a slightly off topic for today, but I'm happy to like do a little bit of addressing of it, but I promise a longer exposition next time when we meet. Okay. Okay. But, but here, here's... here's uh, 
an initial kind of way of thinking about this question, okay? So there's, number one, there is, there's questions about what I've just said about the situation of hyperpluralism. There's also questions about uh, theodicy, right? And I think both of those are, are in the mix whenever we ask about the driving out of the Canaanite nations. Um, so, huh? Uh, the justice of God. How is God just? Um, that's, it's a question about, you know, when we see these things that strike us as being out of, out of sync with the character of God as we, as we see it, you know, inscribed in Jesus Christ, right? What do we do with that? Is that actually uh, a problem, right? Is that, is that something that, uh, that um, compromises the justice of God? Okay, so I think both those questions are uh, important. Um, so number one, here's what I will say. Uh, Israel was always to be interpenetrated by the alien and the sojourner. So that is people who do not believe like Israel, right? Those are the surrounding nations. And they were to treat them like brothers because they were also slaves in Egypt, right? That, came, that, that's a, that framing is repeated several times throughout the, the law, right? So that's number one. Number two, they were surrounded by and constantly threatened by other nations, so that experience of being surrounded by nations that were far more powerful and had far more powerful stories, right, was a critical piece of the life of Israel. So when you look at the creation story, for, for, for example, uh, it is a story that is in conversation with the other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, right, the cosmogonies, as they're called. It's the story of how things came to be, right, the heavens and the earth came into existence. Um, so that is a polemical conversation with those stories. Uh, so the, the most important one is the ancient Sumerian story of Enuma Elish, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, right? But this is a, hey, Israel, this is your story. The story is the one that is, that is engendered by Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, not Marduk. Marduk is a false god. Marduk is a demonic god. The true god is the living god, Yahweh Elohim, right? So th there's those pieces. Now, now, when you think about this, the theodicy pieces, it's a little bit more challenging. And that's what I actually want to get into uh, next time, or maybe it's the time after, I forget. But the, but the point here, I think the critical one, is to note that the, the, uh, the invasion of the, of the Canaanite lands was not designed to be a slaughter first and foremost. It was designed to be an eviction, like get out, right? And only if you refuse to get out are you put to the, put to the sword so that you're not a polluting influence. Does that make sense? That's a critical piece. Secondly, in uh, Genesis 15, right, same chapter where Abraham receives the covenant, he says, you're not going to go in yet. And you remember why it says you're not going to go in yet? Because the sins of the Amalekites and the Canaanites has not yet, been, has not yet reached its full measure. He gave the Am Amalekites and the Canaanites 400 years to repent of child sacrifice and idolatry and sexual immorality and, like, abuse and oppression of those people in their midst. Like, all of that contributes in the providence of God to this, the way the story unfolds. And I think we have to meditate upon those mysteries and go deeper into them if we're going to actually understand how does justice of God work? How does it fit into the overall story? How does it pattern and shape our behavior now? So all of those questions, I think, are important ones to ask. Um, is that somewhat uh, sufficient as an answer, as an initial answer? Yeah. Exactly. I, I, there's a lot more to say, but um, I'm just trying to, you know, move, move somewhat, somewhat more quickly. Okay. So those, those three things, I think, if we put them together, reducing nominalism, uh, this, this kind of tripod of Christianity being ritualistic, moral, intellectual, and that the, the, the people of God are meant to redeem the whole world, or the instrument through which God is to redeem the whole world. 
Uh, and that means that, that the people of God must be proximate to those to whom we're going to witness. We both have to be a social body, um, a body that is integral. We have to have relationships with one ourselves, with our, among ourselves. As Paul says, right, we are all members of the body of Christ and individually members one of another, right? We interpenetrate one another in our social lives in a beautiful way. But that's not, that's a porous reality, right? It's a, it's a reality that's open to the world in a way that is, is in, in, invitational and allows the world to come in. All right, so um, now I'm going to switch gears and talk about the scriptures themselves, right? So from the beginning to the end, the Bible is the text of a people asserting in conversation with other rival and commensurable stories their faith and confidence in the living God. That is not the right time, is it? Oh, it is the right time. Oh, oh my goodness, that's the right time. Oh my gosh, okay, all right. I got to move. Um <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, sorry. Okay, so the, the scriptures are the story from beginning to end of the people of God in conversation with other rival incommensurable stories asserting their faith and confidence in the story of the living God, Yahweh Elohim, and the goodness of his creation and in his resolute will to rescue and deliver that creation from evil and death. Okay, so just to take the example from our chapter today from Act 1 of God establishing his kingdom. In the story of Scripture, the creation, as depicted in Genesis 1, as I just mentioned, uh, is an extended polemical conversation with several ancient Near Eastern cosmogonies. Now, again, that word cosmogony means the coming into existence of heaven and earth, right? How did that happen, right? So these ancient stories are myths about how that comes into existence. Um, and especially the story that it's in conversation with is probably the one that's the ancient Sumerian myth called Enuma Elish. Now, what you need to understand about Enuma Elish is it's the story of struggle, both between the gods themselves, the various gods themselves, and between the gods and the earth and the peoples of the earth. So the heavens and the earth come into existence in this story through a titanic conflict between the two gods, Marduk and Tiamat. Now, Marduk struggles with Tiamat, who's a great dragon, and he cuts her body in half, and he puts half in the sky above and half in the sea below. And that's how the heavens and the earth achieve their solidity. But she still lives, even though she's cut in half. And that's where all the chaos comes from, right? So, so it's a continuing struggle against Tiamat, like all of life is, right? And, and Marduk is the great god to whom one appeals for help in the struggle against Tiamat. But Marduk doesn't really care about the peoples of the earth, right? He's, he, he, he can be propitiated so that he will act in favor of the, of the peoples of the earth. But it is, is actually, he doesn't really care about, about the people that, that, that worship him. Um, he just simply occasionally will throw him a bone, right? Um, and the human beings that are created are crushed in this titanic war between the gods. And the, the, the gods, importantly, are just like human beings, right? Uh, mostly in their misbehavior, right? They're... they're, they're um, they're terrible. I mean, just like the Greek gods and the Roman gods, they're all terrible. Like, they're human beings at their worst, but they're infinitely more powerful. So they can do whatever they want, and humans get crushed in the process. So life is tragic. But the story of Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God, is different. And the way that Genesis 1 and 2 portray it, the earth is his temple, and he created it in order to fill it. The earth is not a god, nor is it filled with gods. That's not how... The scriptures image it. The sun is actually called a greater light and the moon a lesser light in order to secularize them. You don't worship these things. They're good gifts of the creator. And uh, Bartholomew and Goheen say it's probably because the sun and the moon were so often worshipped as gods by the people among whom the Israelites were now living. 
God alone is to be worshipped. God is, therefore, he's distinct from his creation. He's different from his creation, but he does not stand far off from his creation. He fills the creation with his presence. The creation is his temple. And that's the central point of Genesis 1, rather than anything per se about the mechanics of the creation of the heaven and the earth. And it's especially important, I think, to mark this, that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, which he is called here, has no rivals. In the ancient world, there was always a divine council that decides things together, how we're going to handle various situations. And that council is not actually a unified thing. There's no unanimity in it. Um, it's always a place of conflict and bloodshed and rivalry between the various gods in the ancient world. But the let us in these opening chapters of Genesis probably reflects, it's probably a nod in the direction of that divine council. But it's used in order to say, Yahweh has no rivals. Among the lesser intermediary beings, spiritual beings that the Lord creates, there is no conflict. There is no rivalry. It's perfect peace and harmony in the beginning. And Christians throughout the ages have also seen the let us as pointing in the direction of the Trinity, right? It's not a full revelation. We don't get that until we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But it points in that direction. And reading that again in light of the end of the story, we know that there is this perfect harmony between the tri-personal God who in love creates all things. You know, one reason for reading the beginning here in light of the end and seeing the Trinity there is that Christians have always believed that in the language of John, God is love. He's, he's not just that he loves or that he is loving, but that somehow the being or the essence of God itself is love. A relationship of perfect harmony and mutual service and mutual delight in one another. And both the absence of conflict in the creation of things and the declaration that everything that has been made is good and the ones that he's created in his image are very good, now that reflects the love that's at the heart of the tripersonal God. And this is an important point. The name of God here is the name that is revealed to Moses just before the Exodus. What does he say to Moses? He says, hey, uh, Barb, go ahead. Well, I just have a question. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know how that fits in with what you're saying. Well, it, that God has no rivals. Satan is actually a rival in the sense of, of trying to capture the people of God. Absolutely, absolutely. Here's here's two things to say in response to that. It's, it's a good point. Um, number one, the way that the Enuma Elish myth and the other cosmogonic myths of the ancient world play out that there is a rivalry between these two in which the outcome is in question. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Like, there's not, there's not a sense of the supremacy, the utter supremacy of the great God in all things, except in the Israelite story. It's unique in that sense, actually, uh, among the, the myths of the ancient Near East. And that's, that's the first point. The second point is we must not imagine the agency of Satan in such a way that, uh, that he actually stands as any kind of rival to God, right? He doesn't. Um, he does wreak incredible havoc. And the way in which human beings are healed and in which we are caught up into the reconciliation of God involves the healing of our will in such a way that we um, have a rivalry with him, right? He serves as a great temptation to us, but he does not serve as a great temptation or rival to God. 
right? Okay, so that's, that's the critical piece. So that in the beginning, when everything is created, there is no contention here. The Lord simply speaks, and it is. Okay. Um, so the name of God that's revealed here is the name that's revealed to Moses before the Exodus, right? What does he say to Moses? Moses says, what am I to call you to the people that you're sending me to rescue? I am who I am, or I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. It actually means all of those things, right? I am all in all. I am Alpha and Omega. All of those ways of speaking about God are encapsulated in that one name. Um, and the, the Israelites saw this name as so holy that they refused to pronounce it. You know what they said in, in, instead of the Tetragrammaton? The Lord, Adonai, right? We won't say that name. It's too holy, right? Um, but that name, its holiness, that word, has become incarnate among us. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there is a personal um, appropriation that's possible for Christians that was never possible, and a closeness and an intimacy that was never possible for the Israelites. They were always sending one of their number in once a year into the Holy of Holies, into the throne room of God. Um, but now all of us are entered in with unveiled faces before the Lord with a kind of powerful intimacy. We dare not take that for granted, right? Because that holiness is no less holy or powerful than it ever was. And yet it has become personal. It has become interior to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have become his temple, right? Um, even as Christ is the temple and we are united to Christ, like living stones were being built up into the worship structure for God. Okay, way off, way off point. Um, but the, the name of God that's used here in this creation account is the name that's revealed to Moses just before the Exodus. He's not just any God. He is Yahweh Elohim. Elohim. He's the Lord God. He's both the creator and the redeemer of the world. And as Bartholomew and Gohin say, I think this is right, when the names Yahweh, Lord, and Elohim, God, are joined as in Genesis 2-4, it makes the powerful point that the same God who rescues Israel from slavery is the God who has made all things, the creator of heaven and earth. The Israelites first come to know God through Moses as their redeemer. Only afterward do they learn of his role as creator. That's true, right? How do they encounter God? How do they know he's God? It's the Exodus, right? That's how they learn who God is and that he is more powerful than any of the Egyptian gods among whom they've been living. Now check this out. There's a, a, a Jewish scholar named Zioni, uh, Zioni Zebet. And he wrote this incredible article where he says, if you look at the plagues, all of them are actually curses and inversions of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, right? So think about the first plague, of turning, the, turning the river into blood, right? The, the god of the Nile was Osiris, right? And the Nile was the river in which the Israelite baby boys were cast in by the Pharaoh, right? Okay, so number one, that plague is saying, th their blood is on your hands, okay? But number two... Osiris is nothing. Yahweh Elohim kills him like that, right? All the blood in the river. Okay, so, so God is showing how much more powerful he is than any of these like rival deities, right? They are nothing before him. And then, you know, notice that the, the magi of the, of the Egyptian court are able to reproduce these first signs, but then after a point, they're like, we got nothing, right? Because no one can contend with the Lord God. And the Israelites learned that first. That he, that he is their sovereign redeemer, and then it is revealed that he is their sovereign creator, right? So that's, that's how the story proceeds. It proceeds first through redemption and then subsequently to 
that through the bigger picture, that the God who saves them is the one who made all things and intends to save and redeem all things. So there's a critical axiom that the church has developed to talk about the way that grace works, right? It's this. Grace perfects and does not destroy nature. Grace perfects and does not destroy nature. And that is because that which God created, he intends to bring back into its, its uh, not just its first purity, but to develop that initial purity into the greatest imaginable thing it could be, right? He, tends, he intends for the redemption of all things to so far excel the original creation of all things that we can't even imagine what it is right now. Listen, what, you know, John, John says in, the, in, the, in the, the first epistle that he writes that, that uh, brothers and sisters, it is not yet known what we will be, right? But we know that when we see him, we will be like him, you know? So it's like the, per, the perfection of the end is so glorious that we can't even yet envision it. But we know that it is connected to and a development of that original integrity of that creation that God made. Okay, go ahead. Again, big question, man. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, number number one. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I do. I do. Uh, I think that there is um, there's a couple of ways of addressing this question. Number one, one way of articulating um, how Adam and Eve were created is not imperfection, but immaturity. Right. So, if you think about Irenaeus's narration of that account in the third century, he says. They were created immature so that they might grow up into grace and that that was short-circuited, right? There is, there's no way for us to get past the event-like character of the fall. I'll talk about that next week, but the, but the, or not next week, uh, next month. The, the event-like character of the fall is inescapable because in order for there to be rupture, there must be something to have been ruptured. In order for, the, for something to be vandalized, there must have been something integral to be vandalized, right? So that, that's actually kind of critical. So, so uh, okay, so I'll just leave it there for now. That's one way of dealing with that dilemma, okay, um, that has, has uh, had a formidable history in the church. Irenaeus says it, the Cappadocian fathers in the uh, 4th century repeat it uh, in various ways. Um, and actually, the way in which they narrate the healing of the human person um, is a kind of maturation into the image and likeness of Christ, right? So there's a parallel between what Adam and Eve were supposed to be like and what those who are the new creation are supposed to be like, how we're supposed to grow up in the faith. So, okay, but, but hey, one of the things that I want to like actually um, commend to you is that there is a, not just the scriptures themselves, I want to commend the scriptures themselves, a deeper immersion in the scriptures. I mean, that's, that's what I'm about. But I also want you to know, hey, there is... 2,000 years of reflection upon these scriptures that are gorgeous. People way smarter than you and me, right? I mean, you devoted their entire lives to thinking about these questions, right? To the ritualistic, moral, and intellectual foundations of the Christian faith. So uh, don't forget that, right? There are answers out there. They've been given. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. So um, where was I? I was... I was uh, Oh, right. There we go. Thank you. Thanks for reminding me. 
Okay, so, so that is incredibly important, that, gra that grace perfects the, inte the integrity of the thing that was already given in the creation. And that's something that Israel learns in their experience of their continuing, immersive, meditative experience of God as their Savior and their Redeemer. Um, and, and we learn in that account that God created the first humans with a vocation. We were made to be in the image and likeness of God. So again, already there... It's a drama, right? We are being called into an expression of personal agency. By the way, you know, to, to your point about, hey, it really seems like you're kind of, you're, like we're, we're thrown into a situation where sin is already, like, dominant. It already has dominion. And that's true in a sense, right? If we're, wherever we come into the story, that's definitely the case, right? The question is only, like, was this the case in the beginning? Right? And I think about this all the time. I'm, I'm um, more and more enamored with fairy tales, I love them so much because where does a fairy tale always start? It's like there's a parent who was super dear who died, right? And you're thrust into this situation where you've got an evil stepmother, right? It's always an evil stepmother, of course. Never an evil stepfather, which clearly is the case. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's always going to be the evil stepfather in real life. But in the story, it's the evil stepmother and the clueless father. Uh, and then, and then, the, then the, the, the main character, has the protagonist, has to work his or her way out of that, right? has to grow and develop and mature in the context of that. And so, so, so the, the, the shape of that life that's given in the fairy tale is, a, um, is the shape of soul craft, right? So that's exactly what our life is. It is, it is. We're placed upon this planet to mature so that our souls can grow up into the image and likeness of Jesus, right? That is, that is the shape of every human life. Uh, and I, golly, I don't think we're going to do the q and I mean the discussion around the tables. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll try to plan my time better next time. Um, all right, but, but humans are created with a vocation to be in the image and likeness of God. They are meant to rule as God's vice regents, his stewards upon the earth. That's what it actually means to be in the image and likeness of God. Uh, and, and that entails certain attributes. Like we have rationality, we have imagination, we have agency, right? We have wills. But hold, hold on one second, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask your question in just a second. But the, but the image and likeness of God is specifically a vocation. It is a vocation to steward and exercise dominion over the, over the earth in a way that is responsible to God. Okay? Okay, go ahead. I just want to say, I think God has created us with all these abilities and so on, but he's also, we're, originally we are created with the liberty to choose. Mm -hmm. Free will, and we did it the wrong way. But, yes, but, uh, but there was that liberty there. Absolutely. Oh, hundred um, percent. Yeah. The uh, the the way that theologians in the history of the church have talked about it is that is that the, the original creation was a probation. In other words, it was like we we were set out and given a a responsibility to choose wisely, and we would choose wisely only insofar as our hearts were aligned to God. So actually, prior to the original sin, there was an even greater original sin that happened in the rupture uh, of the integrity of our hearts. So yeah, free will is absolutely part of, the, part of the mix. And now free will, like in the conditions of sin, is nothing like the glory of what it once was, right? It is not a libertarian free will, the ability to choose between equal and opposite things. It is always with a bent and a slant towards that which is evil. And that's what it means to be in, to be born into the conditions of sin. Go ahead, Jean. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, I want to um, I, I want to modify that slightly. I may have said that the, the original creation was perfect, but I, what I meant to say was that it was integral. In other words, it could develop in the direction of perfection. That, but but that but that is not the same thing as saying that in its original form it already had the maturity and the, the perfect character of what it uh, um, it would be if it had developed. No, no mistakes. No, it entirely, and that's. And that's the whole point, right? Against Marduk and Tiama. I mean, in a sense, in a sense Enuma Elish is that the, the point of it is that the world is a mistake, right? It is, a, it is the result, it is merely the result downstream of a conflict between two great titanic gods who could care less, who give a rip about the human beings that they're destroying, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, all of the chaos and the disorder and the imperfection of the world is attributable to that. Not so much in the Israelite myth, right? And I'm calling it a myth in this sense, right? A myth is a story about the way things are that calls us into agency. It doesn't mean, as it does in modernity, like a false story, right? Um, it can be a false story, or it can be a true story. And in this case, it is the true story of the whole world. Okay, so uh, I've got to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, so... Um, Yes, the creation of male and female in the image and likeness of God. This is a crucial thing that, that both, the, both the gender binary that is enshrined in the vast majority of human relationships is part of the integral creation of God, and the dominion is given to both male and female. Patriarchy is a consequence of the fall. Look, read, read the story yourself. It says it right there. You know, Genesis 3, that's when patriarchy is enshrined. Okay, so... <clears throat> All right, let me see, where am I? Okay, so from beginning to end, the scriptures are the story, the drama of God's rescue of the creation that he fashioned. And set in its original context, in, its, in the ancient Near East, it is in conversation with these rival and incommensurable stories, but it nonetheless speaks to every culture. Coming from that very particular place, it is nonetheless the true story of the whole world, which is able to incorporate the most glorious aspects of every other story and destroy all that is false in them. In the words of the missiologist Andrew Walls, there is both an indigenizing impulse and a pilgrim impulse in Christianity. There's an impulse that affirms all that is good and true and beautiful in every culture where it takes root. C.S. Lewis called these the good dreams of humanity. It affirms all of that. But at the same time, there's an impulse which calls out sin, which Cornelius Plantinga calls the culpable vandalism of God's shalom, which occurs in our hearts, in all of our hearts, and which is also expressed corporately in different ways in every culture. The claim of this story is nothing less than that it is the true story of the whole world. It is the one true universal story. It is the story which out-narrates every other story. It is powerful because it is God's story. So it's critical that we grasp the inner unity of this story, that it is a single coherent drama which is summoning us, too, to play our part. So the question then is, how can this book, which is actually a library, right? It is a library. The word Bible actually come from the, comes from the Greek word, which means books, plural, right? It's a whole library of books, and they're written at many different times by many different hands and many different cultures. They've been translated and expanded and edited. How can all of that be a unity? 
The unity that Christians claim for this book is based, number one, on the fact that this book has not only many human authors, but a single divine author. And that these two elements are not in any way in conflict with one another. God's agency in superintending the collection of these books is not in any way at odds or out of sync with the fact that they were created by many different hands in many different times in many different places, in many different cultures. In fact, that enriches the unity of the book, that it incorporates so many different elements. Secondly, uh, that we, we also, it, it also depends, the unity depends upon the claim that God superintended the process of canonization in such a way that it's just these books in this order and in this state of redaction. In other words, this final form that came into existence. Okay? The word canon is the Greek word that means rule. In other words, it's referring to the criteria of selection of these books, not to the books themselves, but to the criteria by which they were selected. Okay, are you following me? That's kind of complicated. All right, all right. So these are big claims. How do we know that this book is divinely authored and not like, you know, William Shakespeare, right? Or is the inspiration of William Shakespeare, which is, which is a beautiful set of works, like or unlike the kind of inspiration that these books possess? Now, the, the, the claim that Christians make is that the inspiration of this process is something altogether different than artistic inspiration. Although there's an analogy between them, it is qualitatively different. And how do we know that it's this book and not others that are, that is, that, that are inspired? The only way that we can do that is to start with Jesus. Just like the Israelites couldn't know about the creation of all things until they had experienced they actually experience the richness of God's salvation of them in the Exodus. So we cannot know about the divine authorship of this text until we look at Jesus. And that is why in the course of evangelizing peoples, people have always gone to the Gospels, and especially to the Gospel of John. Because that is the text, those are the texts where we encounter Jesus himself. Okay? We've got to start with Jesus. If Jesus was not crucified for our sins, if he did not rise from the dead in his body, which the word assumed in order to be able to save all of us, in history, we have no reason to trust this text as anything other than another ancient Near Eastern text, right? It could just sit on the shelf with all those other texts. Something has happened in history that has decisively reoriented history and caused us to change our assessment of events, and that is his birth by the Virgin Mary, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Hey, those are two names that are actually embed, actually embed him in history. He's not a free-flowing signifier like other myths. He is myth become fact. He is the true story of all things become a concrete person walking around on this earth, breathing and getting sick, right? And getting tired and experiencing everything that we experience on this life, yet without sin. That's the, claim, that's the claim that the scriptures make about Jesus. And the fact that he is embedded in history is the crucial anchor point, right? Now, historical critical scholars used to say that there's no evidence whatsoever that Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea during the time of Christ. But guess what? Half a century ago, we found the inscription that definitively places him there. He is anchored in history. There is literally no reason to doubt that Jesus was an historical personage. And the only question is, will we believe the apostles when they say he was raised from the dead and he appeared to them? Father Jonathan told us this last week. Paul gives us a formula 
It was handed on to him by eyewitnesses, and he hands it on to the Corinthians. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Kephas, that is, to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one born out of time. The word tradition comes from the Latin word which means handing over, traditio. It's the word that Paul uses here in its Greek form, paradosis. He's faithfully handing over this information to the Corinthians, this story to the Corinthians in a formula, and he's telling them, hey, you can go check this out. Like, go ask one of the over 500 witnesses to Christ's resurrection and, and uh, appearances in his glorified, resurrected body. It still had the scars from the nails. It was recognizably himself. You could put your hands in the nails. He talked to you. He ate fish with the brothers, right? This really happened. And Jesus' story is the story of Israel, preserved in its sacred writings, the law, the prophets, and the, the Ketuvim, the writings. The apostles are constantly explaining what happened to him, to Jesus, in light of what happened then. And they're constantly explaining who they are in the light of Christ. You see? See how this works? Israel learns who they are through the salvation of God, and it enables them to tell the backstory. Right? The apostles encounter Jesus, and what they encounter of Jesus enables them to explain what happened to him in light of what happened then in Israel. Right? The most common form of exegesis in the Bible is called pesher exegesis. Pesher exegesis is a word that means this is that, right? Like Jesus is the temple, right? That kind of thing, okay? Um, and so they're constantly reaching back and using the images and the types that were there and given in the text of, text of, of, of Israel's story to explain who Jesus is, Jesus is. Let's see, where am I? Okay. So the early church inherits this apostolic preaching about Jesus, right? This kind of formula that Paul gives, the, the early church inherits those kinds of formulas. And they look like ancient creedal statements, like the Apostles' Creed is based upon, is patterned upon this apostolic preaching. They called it the rule of faith. You can find versions of it that are very similar to one another in Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origen and a bunch of other church fathers. They all say, hey, here's, here's how... The here's how you know that the text is truthful, how this particular text is truthful. Here's how you know that this text is trustworthy. Here's how you read this text rightly, right? Because there's any number of ways you could read the text, but if you don't read it in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you read it wrong, right? That's what they're saying. Okay, so they called it the rule of faith, and it's the basis upon which they selected the text, which are in our New Testament, and not the myriad others which claimed apostolic origin. They understood those texts to be divinely inspired, which spoke most faithfully about who Jesus was and is. Everything hinges upon Jesus. The text itself hinges upon Jesus. The interpretation of the text hinges upon Jesus. The unity of the text hinges upon Jesus. The text coming to life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit depends upon Jesus. In the power of the Holy Spirit, the other advocate that Jesus promised us exists in us in order to tell us the truth about who Jesus is through this text. When we come to see this text as a unity, it is because we see it as the story of Christ, and we come to see it as his instrument to shape us into his people. And only then will this text come to life 
for us and in us. Only then will we be able to say with Martin Luther, the Bible is alive, it has hands and grabs hold of me, it has feet and runs after me. One of my, one of my favorite quotes ever is by the third century theologian Origen, who was the first great, maybe systematic theologian of the, of the, of the Christian tradition. He says, when something said by the Lord sets someone on fire so that he becomes a lover of wisdom because of it and burns with eagerness for all that is beautiful, then one can say that the fire of the Lord has come upon him. Mm. Yes. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the goal, right? That's how we're supposed to read scripture. So it's, this is not only a human artifact from the ancient Near East and the Hellenistic societies of the Mediterranean Basin. I mean, it is that, and it can be studied with immense profit in that way. But we miss the critical thing if we, if we miss that it is also a divine text that preaches Christ on every page to us. Hey, what about those crazy genealogies? Yes, they preach Christ. They do. This text, if we understand it as the story of Jesus, has the power to send the fire of the Lord upon us. As Isaiah 64, 2 says, both to stir us up like fire makes things boil, to make us lovers of wisdom, to burn with eagerness for all that is beautiful, and to purify all that is impure within us, to burn off every evil desire, and to fight with ardor against the corporate evils in our society. That's the whole goal of this text. That is its, its work as the instrument of God to, to stir us up and to purify us. So it's our task here, I hope, to understand how the Bible is a unity and how its story is a better story than all of its rivals. It out-narrates all of the contenders, and it creates a beloved community whenever that community strives to live on the basis of it, on the basis of Christ's story as written in the Scripture. And look, the American church has by and large been a dismal failure to read the text this way, in this way. Bartholomew and Goheen say this, Most of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits, Theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, when we like take little phrases from it and put it on posters for kittens, I'm sorry, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. <laughs> when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore the divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. All human communities live out of, this, of some story that provides a context for understanding the meaning of history and gives shape and direction to their lives. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture, and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Look, the unity of the Bible is the very thing that is most vehemently denied by a host of present-day false teachers. I, don't, I do not hesitate to name them for you. I'm going to name a few right now. Rob Bell, Rachel Held Evans, Nadia Bolt Weber, false teachers. Do not listen to them. Do not listen to them. Look, here's a characteristic line from Bolt Weber She's in, in, in an interview. She says this, the Bible's not clear about expletive deleted. The Bible is a library. Let's say you have this huge library in your house and you ask, what's the clear message my library has to say about gender? The poetry is going to say one thing. History says another. Prose says something. Science fiction says something else. It's like saying, oh, no, the library is clear. That's BS. The Bible is a unity. The unity is sourced and found in Christ. And Bowles Weber's current teaching on sexuality is a case in point. She denies the coherence of Scripture in order to substitute what Paul says should condition our understanding about sexuality, which is the Lord's incarnation and his resurrection, for a modern secular consent paradigm. 
That's what she wants to use as the way in which we should understand and interpret our sexuality. Look, the worldview story of modernity says at its heart, I am my own. I can do whatever I want. Who am I? I am an autonomous, self-creating, therapeutically oriented individual. Where am I? I am in a deracinated, empty, disenchanted cosmos. The only purposes in it are the ones imposed by my mind and other minds like me. What is wrong? Although we have achieved a standard of living and an array of material delights beyond the wildest dreams of any society that has ever existed, we are still empty and unhappy. And more than that, worse than that, we are bored. And we're cruel because we're bored. What's the solution? More modernity, more progress, more disenchantment, more autonomous, self-creating, therapeutically oriented individual selves. What time is it? We're in the greatest time in history. It's 2019. We progress far beyond where we were, but we have so much more progress to make. That's the modern story in a nutshell, right? And at its heart, the biblical story says no to that. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. And the body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Guess what he was dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? An antinomian culture, much like the one in which we have it right now. Okay? Look, so what's the story? What is the story? Who am I? I am an image bearer, vandalized by my own sin and the sins of others, but redeemed in Christ, of infinite worth and dignity because I belong body and soul, not to myself, but to him who is my savior. Where am I? God's good creation, which he sacrificed himself for in order to reconcile it to himself. What is wrong? Death has universal dominion and reign because sin has universal dominion and reign over the creation. The creation itself has been distorted and is crying out in agony because of the reign of these powers. So what's the solution? The healing of the world and especially of God's image bearers through Christ's rescue of us. Through Abraham and Israel, the way was prepared for him and the images given to understand him. Death no more has dominion over him. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, because he's been resurrected from the dead, and we will be resurrected with him because we have been united to him through his spirit. Amen. Amen. Right? Amen. He was not ashamed, Hebrews tells us, to call us his brothers and sisters. Amen? Not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. What time is it? The age between the ages. The messianic age has begun, but it will not be complete until heaven comes to earth and floods it with its presence, until the creation and its integrity is made perfect so that there is no more divide between what we know we ought to do and what we long to do. And until then, we, the church, are the body that witnesses to him and the power of the Spirit. So look, that's the story in a nutshell. Nothing is more important than the work of reminding ourselves what the story of Scripture is and that it is a unity. It is a unity because from beginning to end, it is the story of the triune God rescuing the good creation in Christ. This is not an artificial way of reading the story because it's the way the Scriptures themselves tell us to read it. What does he say? And what does Luke say in chapter 24 of his gospel? Christ said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what? He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's his story. It's his story. 
we're invited into that drama. We have a place, to, we, have a, we have a role, a small but critical role to play in that story. So we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll pause there. We've still got 15 minutes for discussion, which is great. Um, and next week we'll turn to the fall, the rupture, okay? Um, act two, rebellion in the kingdom. Thank you. No, 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 no. Okay.